So this morning we are starting a brand new series of talks looking at Paul's letter to the Ephesians. If you have a Bible or a Bible app on some digital device nearby, grab it. You're going to need that this morning. Um, turn to the book of Ephesians with me. It's about three quarters of the way through. Um, we're going to be traveling through this book for the next few weeks and we'll be looking particularly in this sermon series about what this letter has to say to us, God's people, about our identity. That's going to be the key focus, the hermeneutic, if you want the, the fancy word, that we're going to be looking through this book of the Bible with. For each passage, I would like us to ask, what does this have to say about who we are as God's people? And I think that the answers to this approach to the book of Ephesians, if we hear them and take them to heart, can change how we live powerfully. I know that in micro home groups, some of us have had the joy of already studying Ephesians together uh, over a course of 10 weeks or so. And if that's you, actually, rather than doubling up and oh no, it's back to Ephesians, I hope that you'll find this sermon series all the more interesting and helpful because you've already talked through these passages and the breakdowns are roughly similar as well. So uh, those conversations and this talk, this set of talks should map onto each other quite nicely. Um, I hope that this set of sermons and this set of, of diving into it will add richness to the study you've already had, if that's you. So my friend Maddie is going to read the passage for us now. Ephesians chapter one, starting at verse one, and we'll end at the end of verse 14. And again, I invite you to think as we read through, what does this say about how I relate to God? What does this say about my identity? Thank you, Maddie. So Ephesians 1, verse 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to the holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavishes on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, with his, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. To him, in him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who are first um, to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. 
And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the, to the praise of his glory. Amen. Thank you, Maddie. Okay, that was a very dense, very rich passage of scripture and beautifully read. Um, depending on which Bible translation you're reading, you may well have had lots of long, complex sentences with many clauses that make the thread of what's said really difficult to follow. Don't worry, we're going to dive in and we'll look at it bit by bit. Um, and a tip for you, if you want to read this slowly and carefully, there is such a thing as the New International Reader's Version, NIRV. And uh, you can look that up for free on the internet. The NIRV has broken down lots of complex bits of the Bible into short bite-sized chunks that are easy to read. So feel free if you want to even be um, search engineing that now, New International Reader's Version, that will, will make it a lot easier to follow. It's not as accurate to the Greek, but it is readable and that's a help. Okay, great. Um, why don't we dive in? Paul begins his letter with his introductions. And then in verse three, he launches into a passionate prayer of praise to God all about what God has done for us in Jesus. That's the main meat of this morning's talk, that prayer. It's a prayer packed full of praise for God's faithfulness, his master planning, his breathtaking love, and his wonderful intentions from before the dawn of time now being shared out like mysteries revealed. This passage is all about God and what he's done for us. And that means that it's therefore also a passage all about how we now stand with God because of what he's done for us. Whenever I'm studying a passage of scripture, I like to ask of it, what does this tell us about what God is like? What does this tell us about what humanity is like? I can see a few of you who've suffered being in my home group before smoking at me because you've heard these questions a million times, but they're helpful. What does this tell us about what God is like? What does this tell us about what humanity is like? What, what does this passage change in me? How does this change things now that I've understood this? And a whole host of other questions. Today, I want to ask of this passage, what does this tell us about how God sees us? And as we explore that, does what I'm reading match how I live? Do I live like that's how God sees me? Or does my understanding and my behavior need to be changed to reflect how things really are? If you're the sort of person who uh, listens to a sermon, hears the word change and thinks, oh no, it's gonna be a telling off. No, not so much, but we'll get to that. To fully grasp Paul's long and excited list of what God has done for us, have that Bible to hand. We're going to journey through it bit by bit. And let's examine what each shining gem of a truth means for you and me. Verse three, we are blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. This is a rhetorical question. We won't unmute you all. How do we think God sees us? 
Really? How, how do you think he sees you? Deep down. Not just on Sundays, but in the day-to-day -day moments of our lives, how does God see you? How do you think he relates to you? Is it our expectation that God wants to give to us generously? Or maybe do we picture him with his hands more closed than open? Do we even maybe picture him sat back, arms folded, waiting for us to say the right things, probably sorry, before he will meet with us? Or do we really not think of him being interested in our day-to-day -day lives at all? Paul's shout of praise in verse three tells us that God has blessed us with every heavenly blessing. We have all the goodness of heaven gifted to us. So that is full invitation to God's presence. That is permission to sit with the creator of the universe. Unrestricted connection to the source of life, of joy of peace, of all the other things that God gives us when he meets us. Every spiritual blessing, that is all the access to God, all the status and all the honour and all the power that is due to Jesus, that's been lovingly shared with us. He set up a little redirect auto forward. God has designed our relationship with him so that the way that the Father looks at the glorious risen Jesus is how he looks at us. That's pretty good. And of course, this also includes all of the gifts that God gives to us through his Holy Spirit living in us. So blessings like the gifts of healing, prophetic words and pictures that grow God's kingdom in our lives and show people that he loves them. God's pretty generous. So, Paul is saying, our status in God's eyes, we are blessed. You are not cursed. You do not have a restricted pass. You have full access, VIP status, into God's presence. You have the full welcome, the full love, joy, peace, the full status, honour, glory in God's eyes. And I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from that love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No matter what claim they make against us, no matter what shameful memory they drag up to taunt us with, nothing can separate us from that. So how does that change how we approach him? I think if we know this, if we take this in, if we allow this to become something that shapes how we live, our worldview, our heaven and earth view, I think if we know this, it gives us what I'll call a joyful boldness, a confidence to be able to run to him, to know that he will smile as he picks us up as a parent does their toddler when the toddler reaches out their precious arms. 
the boldness that knows that you can run in and raise your hands to him and he'll always pick you up. It's not the sort of boldness that might cause us to take advantage of him, tempt us to try and use his love for us against him. Oh God, you love me, so therefore I demand that you give me some sin to play with. It's not that. It's the boldness of the t- Did you see that BBC News thing a couple of years ago where someone was on, on a call and then the door opened and the children just stomped on the way through and completely interrupted the interview? It was great. It went viral for about six months. It's that sort of boldness. The toddler who can stomp cheerfully into daddy's Zoom meeting because he wants a cuddle and a biscuit. And God gives them to us. If you read the Gospels, you will see Jesus told story after story to encourage us that the Father wants us to boldly, assuredly stomp right into him, reach on up to him. That's the relationship dynamic he planned for your day-to-day life and mine. Verse 4. Verse 4 tells us that we were chosen by God in Christ to be holy and blameless in his sight. Chosen. There is so much in that word. There's so much heart, so much life-changing truth packed into that idea, that reality. Chosen. God wants you. God chose you. You are no accident or afterthought in God's eyes, in God's family. And again, I think this is one of those things that is so easily known in theory and so difficult to let it become a truth that we live by in practice. Again, rhetorically, we won't dare unmute you. What does it feel like to know that you're chosen by God? What does it feel like to think that instead of a distant judge-like God reluctantly letting you in, you can join the club, I suppose, don't have too many donuts. The father of the universe is the father who lovingly created you, chose you to be reunited in him in precious, experienceable intimacy. Friends, if you struggle to know it here, and you struggle even more to know it here, friends, you're not alone. And we will pray for that later on because, man, what a difference it would make if we knew in feelings as well as in thought that we were chosen children of God. It's great, but there is a problem. And whether you're a theological mind and you've thought this through, or whether this is just something we know by instinct, I think most of us know the problem better than we know God's solution for it. And the problem is this, God is holy. He is good in a way that puts Earth's definition of good to shame. He is good in the sense that is at once more beautiful and more terrifying than our idea of good can get anywhere near. His goodness is like a bright and blinding light, a burning goodness that when we catch a glimpse of it would cause us to shrink under the weight of our inadequacy, our sinfulness. This is the goodness that when Simon Peter, the fisherman, first caught a glimpse of it, 
when Jesus miraculously provided an overwhelming catch of fish, Peter caught just the tiniest picture of it and said, oh Lord, please leave me. I'm such a sinful man. Luke 5 verse 8. This we get. When we properly conceive of God and his goodness, I think most of us know that we are just a wretch, unworthy, painfully distant. And that sense that we have when we think about God's goodness and us in comparison is not false modesty. It's not that thing that we do when we sometimes say, oh, no, I'm nothing. You're much better than me. Our sense of inadequacy before God is absolutely well founded. The burning light of his holiness and the stuff that we do think and say, our behaviours, our words to each other, our thoughts, they offend the goodness of God like, like a Zoom bomber writing swear words over worship lyrics, but multiplied by like a billion. So when Paul talks about us as chosen in Christ by God to be holy and blameless in his sight, this is a big deal. This God choosing us, us to be holy and blameless is a rewriting of reality on what feels like an insurmountable scale. Something enormous will have had to have happened for him to see us as holy and blameless. For us to be able to stand tall before him with our heads held high, to look him in the eyes and receive the love that he has for us. And as I suspect a few of you know, something enormous has happened to allow us to meet with God in love, to bask in, even enjoy the heat and the light of his holiness and not be burned up by it. We are holy and blameless in God's sight because he planned for us to be from before the creation of the cosmos. At the unthinkable cost of God's son's own life on the cross. This was always his loving plan. Knowing every single thing about you, every shameful memory long before they happened, he chose us in him from before the beginning to stand holy and blameless with him and know that we are loved. And again, not in theory, not as a theology lesson or a nice story for a Sunday morning, but for your and my everyday life, in our homes, our workplaces, our relationships, what difference will knowing this make to how we decide to live? God chose us to be holy and blameless. What difference will that make to our prayers, to our approach to God? to how we speak to and treat others and ourselves. I feel that to ponder this afternoon. How would me living as holy and blameless change how I speak to and act with God, with my loved ones, with the people I meet? I think if we lived like that were true, and it is, it will make a huge difference.
verse five. Paul continues this point by saying, in love, God predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. So what's contained in this idea of adoption was the Roman principle, that being the world in which Paul was writing, of joining a family in such a way that you have full legal status as a son. Don't worry, ladies, be a son. They get the heir in this world of that family. That means all the inheritance rights, the full status of a son, not a bolt on, not a half in, half out addition. Paul is using the metaphor of a Roman adoption system to show that you and I become full children of God through the son of God himself, Jesus Christ, scooping us up into him and therefore sharing his identity with us. Jesus's identity. Just let that sink in for a minute. Because the one whom we worship is the one who heaven worships, who the angels bow down before, who God honours as his precious beloved son. And he wants to share that identity with us. Belovedness. Holiness. It's a profound and life-changing truth. That when we allow God to make that divine trade, to put our old lives to death with his death on the cross, and him give us the new life that he offers us through his resurrection. The new life that he gives us is in him, not to steal from a later passage in Ephesians, but we're now seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. That's incredible. And the new life that he gives us through his resurrection in him, his status and his privileges are generously shared with us. God lavishes goodness onto us. That is some serious sonship inheritance to be adopted into. And it is no cold theological fact. It is the work of God in love, planned with great affection and feeling before the creation of time itself. So again, friends, what would your prayers sound like if you knew that this was what God the Father wants for you? With what assurance and what comfort would we fall back into the Father's arms in our weakest moments? With what confidence would we come to him with our needs and our asks if we knew the family status God the Father planned and chose us for? And all right then, seeing as we've raised the question of chosenness and predestination, we'll say just a few words about this tricky theological question. The problem with the question of predestination and chosenness is as follows. Does God choose who his family is? Or is his offer to join his family by accepting a relationship with Jesus open to anyone who wants it? Who really does the choosing? Is it God or is it us? And if it is God and not us, then how could he rightly judge anyone guilty of sin if he's in control? The question of whether or not God predestines us calls into question how free any of our choices really are, and even how fair God's judgment of those choices would be. That's the problem. And many a theologian has spent many words trying to unravel this tension, and this morning's talk is not going to be another paper on that pile. My short summary is, there is a tension there. We know that God has chosen us, 
It's in the Bible. It's reliable. It's true. And we know that our choices have consequences. Those consequences matter in this life and in the new heavens and new earth. We are to be held responsible for our actions. That is true, both in our own experience and in the Bible. It's true. So how do these two facts sit alongside each other? I plan to have a long and fascinating conversation with God about that, probably not before the new heavens and new earth. And until that day, I don't know. And I'm not convinced that anyone else knows either. I'll go further. I actually think this is one of those tensions that we should keep hold of as a tension in our understanding of God and ourselves and the universe. I think it's helpful for us to hold on to the sovereign power of God, the real consequences of my choices and actions. I think that if we let either of those things go, we would lose sight of some important perspective of who God is, what God is like, what the universe is like, and how I'm to live in it. So actually, I think the tension might be helpful. Okay, Jim, thanks for nothing. How do we live with that tension practically? How particularly does it affect how we think of those who aren't in Christ? I heard one preacher describe, uh, I think this is a really helpful picture, a doorway. And the sign above the doorway says something like, all are welcome by your free choice. And then if you enter through that doorway, there's a sign on the back that says, chosen and predestined before the creation of the universe. And both statements are true. When someone makes the free choice to walk through that door, they turn around and discover they were chosen from before the beginning of time to do so. So when it comes to wishing for, praying for, working for our friends, our family, our loved ones and the world around us to discover that God is real and has love for them and to be reconciled with them, we work as if every single one is precious, chosen and wanted and just hasn't said that all important yes yet. And we find out who made what choice and who that family status will or won't apply to afterwards. I mean, how could we do anything else? It's also what I see in the Bible. As Peter says, this is 2 Peter 3 verse 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise to come back and, and bring justice, as some understand slow. Instead, Peter says, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Well, that's his heart right there. This idea also seems to fit to me, Jesus's attitude as I read him ministering in the gospel accounts. I don't see Jesus presuming that anyone is excluded. I see him throwing open the opportunity to meet with God to all people. Huge grace to the outsiders. Significant challenge to reset prejudice to the religious leaders. There is no outcast from the invitation of God in Christ Jesus. So I hope you don't mind me almost ducking the question of predestination. Instead, I'm convinced that we need to hold on to God's pre-planning and our free choosing as important truths alongside each other, 
even if we have to wait to find out how they join up later. Shall we continue back in the passage? Verse six. Paul emphasizes that we receive these gifts, the being chosen, the being made holy and blameless in God's eyes, the being chosen for adoption to son status. We receive all of these gifts purely through God's grace. These things are free gifts given lovingly to former rebels through Jesus. We do not deserve it. <laughs> we do not deserve it. And that's okay. Don't let it hold you back. It is a gift. God wants you to receive it. This access to him, this status and honour that we did not deserve, in fact, we fought him, in fact, we still fight him. He runs out to you anyway. He places the robe of his honour around your shoulders. He kills the prize lamb to throw you a welcome home party you know you don't deserve. If that's uncomfortable, then we're beginning to get it. We're not here because we should be. And also, that means that there isn't anyone else who shouldn't be here either. The doors have been thrown open to the worst of us, to the praise of his glorious grace. Amen. And this is how he did it. Verse 7 tells us that the one he loves, that is Jesus, God has given us redemption through his blood. We have been redeemed, bought back, like a hopeless addict who sold, us, sold ourselves into slavery to feed our habit, and our lover paid the price to buy our freedom. We've been cashed in and taken home to our real family. This was no discount coupon. Our redemption was bought through his blood, as Lucy guided us through so powerfully what happened on Good Friday on that cross. It was Jesus shedding his innocent and holy blood in our place that bought our redemption. It was our unholiness and sin that needed to be cleaned from us, cleared from our account. And God didn't do this grudgingly, but through his incomprehensible grace, he richly lavished that kindness upon us. He spent so much he planned to, intended to, spend so much to bring us back to him. Through the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. Revelation 13 verse 8. So again, what does it feel like? What does it feel like to know that God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in a conversation before the beginning of creation, planned the cross to bring you back into relationship with God. Actually, oh, I wasn't going to do this, but um, I'll go over time. Sorry. Uh, in this passage, verses three down to six, focus on the Father. And then six and a half, seven-ish, down to about, mm, is it? I haven't got it in front of me. Uh, down to about 12, 
switch from a focus through the Father to the Son. And then verses 13 and 14 are the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This is the Trinity at work. Don't let anyone tell you it's not in the Bible. This is the Trinity at work now applying their plan from forever time. He always wanted this. He, the three in one, always wanted this. Planned the heartbreak at the heart of that divine community for a bunch of us who hadn't even been made yet. It's how loved you are. It's not a theology lesson, it's true. The love that this truth tells us that God has for us, the ultimate long game plan that God chose in order to show you how much he loves you. Do you see that truth in yourself? Does that map onto anything you think about yourself in God's eyes? Have we let the reality of these facts shape how we approach God and talk to him? This is not a finger wag this morning. This is no telling off. Like I said, this is a moment for us to pause, to take stock and to wow once again at God's unfathomable love, self-giving love. And this morning, I want to invite you, all of us, to be changed by it. Again, if we need to, if we've heard this, been changed by it and it's grown cold or stale, it's still true. And if we do, I think our lives before him and with him will look a bit more like he wants them to. Okay, verse eight. From about the middle of verse eight to the end of verse 10, there is this fun, fun and fantastic unpacking of a mystery that was only revealed in Jesus. This was the fulfillment of everything that God had shared with humanity up until that point. God's plan of restoration is for everybody. And just to be clear, that means that the most unlikely person you can think of, the most unlikely group you could think of, is included in God's plan to bring all people and actually even all spiritual beings and all powers and principalities, he offers and intends to bring them into unity in God's kingdom under Jesus's kingship. If you're in church in and around Ephesus 2000 years ago, the original recipients of this letter, then the scandal that would be fresh in their minds was that non-Jews could benefit from the kingdom of God that God had promised through his chosen people, Israel. The Gentiles could have as much access to God by accepting his invitation to them in Jesus as those who went to the temple in Jerusalem. It was huge. We'll see a little bit more about this Jew and Gentile dynamic and how the doors were thrown open later in Ephesians in chapter three. But for us today, what I think this has to say to us as God's people is that no matter where you come from, no matter what history, what past you've come from, God invites us to meet with him, to make Jesus our king and join his family. And there is nobody to whom this offer is not available. And we'll finish off this passage this morning in verse 12. God chose us 
so that our lives lived hoping in Jesus would generate praise for him from those who see it, those in heaven and on earth who see it, including, I'm sure, from those who like what they see and are making that journey towards inviting him in for themselves. And for those who do not yet, do not yet know him, here is a beautifully concise step-by-step -step flow of how to join his family. In fact, if you are here with us this morning or you're watching this on YouTube later and you haven't said that yes to God yet, pay particular attention to verses 13 and 14 with me. You also were included in Christ Jesus when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed and you were marked with him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. One, two, three. When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed and having believed, you were then marked in him with a seal, that is the Holy Spirit. If you want to be included in Christ and you are hearing this message of truth, the good news of your being saved by Jesus, all you need to do is believe it. You can begin a relationship right now with God just by saying yes to his offer of new life with him. It works like this. You, you say to him, you take my old life, you put it to death on the cross with Jesus. Time and space don't matter. He can do that bit. And you accept in return the new life that he gives you. The new life that came about through Jesus' resurrection, ascension, sitting in the right hand of the Father, <laughs> speaking to the Father on your behalf. That new life is in him. He's got new life in him for you. <laughs> new life in him. A win-win. Thanks for that in the chat. And when you do, you are marked in him with a promised seal. So that seal is not just some stamp, not even one of the fancy wax ones you used to get on the back of letters, but that seal is God's presence himself moving into your life. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit living in you well, that is your portable, permanent access to God. A little bit of God's whole new kingdom that you get to carry around with you now. Like a deposit that guarantees the whole inheritance to come. If you want that and you haven't said yes, yes to it yet, then we'll give you an opportunity in just a moment. Okay, let's come into land, shall we? Let's wrap up. What does this passage have to say? about who we are as God's people. The love that God has for his people and the offers open to everyone to become part of it. The love God has for his people, which he gives to us through Jesus when we are in Christ, Christians. It just pours out of this prayer. We are chosen, wanted, planned, pre-planned in fact, we are freely given to. We are redeemed from our messes and our mistakes, bought back from the gross failure to God's family. We're forgiven and we can stand tall and holy and guilt-free people 
face to face with God because he has so graciously made us so. And we are worth, in God's eyes, the plan that saw God's people's promised saviour, God the Son himself, executed unjustly on a Roman cross so that we could be given a fresh start with him that we could never have achieved without him. This passage tells us that God is so kind to us. Jesus is gloriously good. He is worthy of our praise and worship, so worthy. And we are so, so loved. I think there are likely to be a few of us this morning who recognize that the way that we see God and how we see ourselves in relationship to God doesn't match this picture. If that's you, when I pray in a moment, I'll be praying for you. And I also invite you to stick around for some prayer ministry at the end of the service. Get some others to gather around you, listen to Jesus on your behalf, pray for you. You can pray for them too, if you like. And if you're hearing this message and you don't, you don't have this relationship yet, you know that you've not received that salvation from God. If you have heard the message of truth, the good news of your salvation, but you haven't believed it and said yes yet, but you want to, then I'm going to pray for you too. And I really encourage you to stick around and get some prayer at the end. I won't even make you pray for anyone else. This is a proper freebie this morning. Good. Let's pray, shall we, friends? Thank you, God. Thank you, God, that you have been so loving for so long, even when we had no idea. Please come, Holy Spirit. Increase your presence in every heart and every home for all of us who are virtually digitally gathered. Come, Holy Spirit. We know that we need you to work in our hearts to make these truths applied for us. We can't do it without you. So come, Holy Spirit. Father, would you make it so that we we understand better and live in the light of your love for us? Would you lovingly challenge us and change our minds, even today, this morning, this afternoon, so that we can see you better and your love for us? Would you have us live in a way that allows us to 
stomp boldly into your presence and throw our arms up and know that we will be picked up and held. Especially, Lord, for anyone who feels more distance from you than closeness to you, just come and show them in their heart what's true, your love for them, your grace for them. And Lord, for anyone who um, is with us in the present or on YouTube, who's thinking, yeah, I want that. Okay. Come Holy Spirit, especially into their heart and their life right now. And if that's you, pray with me. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the love that you have for me. I want it. I want him. Yes, please, God. And I do want to give you my whole life, my whole identity, my whole who I am up to this point and ask you to swap it for a new one, the new one you always planned for me. Come, Lord, and be Lord of my life, please. I want your way, not mine. Come and meet me and love me and lead me. And please, Lord, give me your Holy Spirit. I want you living in me. I want you to do those fun things I've heard about in my life and through my life. Amen.